Time to Travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with raconteur extraordinaire Rob Kasky about his recent trip up the west coast of Africa. Derek Oersthuizen, general manager of Handpicked Experiences, will be on the line, and he'll be telling us about the launch of this new company, which promises to open up a whole new world of experiences for the South African market. And if there's time, I'll also be giving you some tips and ideas for accommodation, some rather unusual accommodation, as well as telling you about some rather unique establishments, rather different places to stay around the world. And just a reminder that if you need any information about something you hear on Time to Travel this evening, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Travel on SAFM. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. When the swing of jazz meets the swing of golf, you are invited to be a part of the fourth annual Standard Bank Joy of Jazz Golf Day on the 20th of August 2013 at the prestigious Rand Park Golf Course. Entertainment by the internationally acclaimed jazz singer Renee Mari. For golf packages, email Gidi at k-wave.co.za or call 072-338-2432. Joy of Jazz Golf Day, supported by SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Time to travel on SAFM. Well, it's no longer package tourism as usual for South Africans looking for domestic travel opportunities. Handpicked Experiences offers lifestyle, sport and wildlife experiences that give unique access to people, places and activities not generally available to the public. Well, Derek Oersthuizen is the General Manager of Handpicked Experiences and he joins me now. Derek, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. Thanks for having us. I was looking through some of the offers that you have at Handpicked Experiences, and you really, it is true, there are some things there that we as just ordinary citizens would never, in our wildest dreams, be able to <laughs> be able to do. I mean, this is an amazing opportunity. Karen, yeah, that's the, that's the whole idea behind Handpicked Experiences. Um, we obviously realized that there was a gap in the market for, for South Africans wanting to travel within their own country. Um, I don't know, there's, there's a perception among South Africans that we cannot have these amazing, unique experiences in our own country, that they have to travel overseas to go, to go find those type of experiences. And um, that's what we're trying to prove wrong. Um, we've got everything right here on our doorstep. And the idea is to give South Africans access to places and to personalities that they would not, not normally be able to, to put themselves together. Well, just to give people some an example of one of them, just one of those, many, I'm going to go through some more of them in a moment, but what appeals to me, for example, is the South Africa versus Australia match, and you actually join Skulk Berger and his sons for a traditional braai, and you go off to their farm, and you it just sounds amazing, and then you actually go off to rugby at, the, at Newlands. Yeah, you know, all the, the usual hospitality packages for the rugby game is, you'll jump in the bus, you get to the stadium, and you'll be in the in the hospitality suite or the skyboxes, as some of them call them, and that will be your whole experience. And that's what we're trying to change here as well. We, we're taking people off to the Skaltberger Wine Estate. Well, you'll meet Skaltberger Senior, which is the old rugby player himself. You'll have a couple of his friends there, and um, you'll get to hang out with his sons and experience the wines they have on offer. Afterwards, 
that's where you get in the bus and will drive you off to the stadium to, to go enjoy the match. And, and people think it's just the local matches. You're also taking them off to France, South Africa versus France with Nick Mallet. Yes, that's right. Um, I'm working in another package as well, or we at Handpick are working in another package as well, but the Nick Mallet package is confirmed already. So, nice international trip. You go to France, and um, while you're there, you are, host- you are hosted by Nick Mallet. Nick will welcome the group there, and um, Nick will be part of the group, a nice welcome dinner, and um, will also go with the group to the stadium to go watch the match. Although that, those are just all my favourite things, rugby. And uh, <laughs> but if you're not into the sports side of things, I mean, there's wonderful things you can actually go exploring all the Cape Gardens with Keith Kirsten. I mean, gosh, what an opportunity! Fantastic. That's one of my favourite packages. Um, a bit later in the year, I think in another month or so, Keith will be will be launching a new book, and the idea is to to do this around his new book. The book is called um, Gardens That Inspire, and. Um, we would like to cover all those gardens, those beautiful gardens that Keith is covering in the book on this tour as well. So we're taking people out to, to the wine estates. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of these gardens are in the, the Stellenbosch area. Having people out there, go have lunch in the gardens. You get a tour of the garden with Keith. And, um, yeah, just a whole weekend of um, beautiful gardens. But, you know, the thing about this, Derek, is you've come up with a real cross-section of different things. I mean, there's pretty much something in your list of things for everybody. I've mentioned the rugby, I've mentioned the gardens, but then you can also go and wander through the Nisner Forest with Gareth Patterson. Now, anybody who knows anything about the secret elephants of the Nisner Forest knows the name Gareth Patterson, and he himself will be taking you walking through the forest. And what other better experience to do that with the man himself? Um, Gareth is well-known for rediscovering the Nazma elephants. Um, at the point, it was thought that they were totally extinct, but there's, there's proof, and Gareth has this proof, that there's a small group of elephants living in the Nazma forest. So what we're trying to do here is taking a National Geographic or Animal Planet experience out of your living room and make you be part of that, that experience. And wildlife experiences, we're also doing the behind-the-scenes of Kevin Richardson, the animal orphans with my lead from and from Animal Planet, and we've got a brand new package out at the Alliance of Medique. So, so much choice. Gosh, so there, there's lots. If you're into wildlife, there's something there pretty much everywhere. You can go and have a look at that. But there's also sport, to, uh, other than the rugby, but personal sport, if you like. There's the Argus Cycle Tour. You do have a package for that. And the Cape Town Warrior Race. A lot of, we've realized a lot of people are, are fans of these um, sporting events. And um, a lot of people struggle to get um, accommodation in Cape Town when the August is on. So what we've done here is um, we've given them accommodation on the route, on the actual August route. But because it's the route, they'll have difficulties to get back to the hotel after the race. So you finish your race, we pick you up in a helicopter, we take you back to the hotel. Your bike will follow safely later. And um, you can go join your family where they're watching you from the balcony of the hotel earlier. But, I mean, you're talking about your accommodation and the balcony of your hotel. What you failed to mention, Derek, is it's the Twelve Apostles Hotel, which is seriously <laughs> the lap of luxury on the route. I mean, you couldn't be more luxurious. And I'm sure after that hard cycle race, it must be the most amazing place to go and just chill out after the race. Yeah, and there's, there's, there's a massage waiting for you Absolutely. when you get there. Gosh. <laughs> talk, talk to me a little bit about this. There's also some things up in Zimbabwe, as, on the Zambezi, the Victoria Falls adventure. You've got Namibia adventure as well. Yeah, there's the, the Namibia adventure. We have there's the one with uh, Marlies von Feeren. Um, 
Marlies is known from the Animal Planet, um, the work she does with um, the animal orphans. And um, we've, con- we've combined this package with a, with a unique desert wine tasting experience. We take you into the heart of the Namib Desert to one of the only places in Africa where they make wine in the middle of the desert. Wow, okay. And then you also climb the red dunes of Sausage Flay, which is, that, that, that is quite that something. Well. So it's, it's a whole bucket list experience. And Victoria Falls, I mean, that, that, oh, I thought that sounded to me more like for the younger crowd because you, you take a trip aboard the Zambezi Lager Party Express. That sounded That's more for the correct. younger crowd. A, that, that is something I went and experienced myself earlier this year, or actually it was over, it was over New Year's, and it is an experience to write home about. It's, it's this all steam train which they drive into the middle of the bush. Um, into a national park. They stop in the middle of nowhere and there's a marquee set up. The tables are laid. There's live music and it's just a magnificent evening in the African bush. So it's not a case of just going to go and look at the falls, which in itself is an amazing experience, but you're getting all this other party stuff as well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then as going a little bit further afield, you can go and play on the fabulous golf courses in, in Ireland. Yeah, it's the link. It's the links courses in Ireland. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people will go onto waiting lists to, to to get access to these courses, and um, we've selected a couple of courses. And through our contacts there, um, we've put together this package where you can play the links courses in Ireland. Now, handpicked is actually a division of Tourvest, and now does that help you in in setting up all these amazing packages? It, it, it does in a way. Um, I mean, the creativity needs to come um, from, from different sources, but um, to invest uh, destination management with all, with all the infrastructure, uh, it does help. Now, I'm looking at, at a list, and if people want to find out more about what, what you've got on offer here, it's handpicked.co.za. They'll find all these offers there with more detail. We've just been giving you a taste of what's available, and that's not even everything that we've mentioned. Are you ch- constantly going to be changing what's – I mean, obviously, these, some of these will stay on. Are you constantly going to be adding to your lists? We are constantly in the process of developing new products. Um, as I speak, we're busy, we're busy signing off brand new products that will go onto the website um, within the next two weeks. There's some very exciting new product coming out of the, the KZN area for next year, um, some battlefield products. Products that just never been done in South Africa before. And I know the battlefields have been, they've been covered many times, but not the way we're going to do it. What are you going to do that's so different? Funnily enough, my next guest on my next guest on the show this evening is actually Rob Kasky, and he is the sort of guy that I think put the battlefield tours on the map. Oh, really? Um, I'm, I'm talking to a couple of people. Um, there's a book coming out later this year. Um, I don't want to let to give away too much, but um, if you keep your eye on the website, you'll see what I mean. Okay, so lots and lots of interesting things. Also, what, these things all sounded very much for the grown-ups, if you like. Do you have anything that's for the family, for the kids? Um, we've got a couple of family, uh, family safaris on the website. Um, there's our Tandeka family getaway, um, where the whole family can go and enjoy a weekend in the bush. It's got a white line interaction. You can walk with cheetahs. And that's a stone throw out of Johannesburg. And we're working on a similar package that's um, for the Cape Town audience. Okay. And just for people as well, if they're looking for something just slightly different, you've even got a Pilates weekend in Hermanus with Ed Boerter, who's been teaching Pilates in South Africa for years. And, and, and that's during the well season as well. So you can go well watching while you're doing Pilates on the balcony of your hotel. 
gosh, so you really ha- you've, you've really thought of absolutely everything, Derek. It sounds amazing. How long have you guys been going with this, and how has it been taken up so far? Um, we've launched in Johannesburg end of last year. Uh, we've moved the company to Cape Town now, so we're running the business out of the Cape Town office, the Tuvis Cape Town office um, at the Coliseum in Century City. We went live with product in April this year, so it's still pretty new, and it's going fantastically well. Well, that's great. I think it's, I think it's because it's got that air of difference about it. You know, it's something, it's unique. I don't think people have seen packages like this where you're actually getting to meet the people involved that you oftentimes only either see on TV or you read about. Now you're actually going to be able to spend a weekend or a week or whatever, however long some of these trips are with those actual people, which is so amazing. And that was the whole idea behind hand-picked experiences, to steer away from the cookie-cutter ideas and uh, the beaten track type of packages. Well, I think you've, you've really gone the, the right way here, Derek, and I wish you much success with this, and I look forward to seeing what else comes up in the next few months or the next few years. We'll keep an eye on you and see what you're doing, but thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. Fantastic, Karen. Thank you for the opportunity. Derek Oersthausen is the General Manager of Handpicked Experiences. I'm sorry about the bad phone line there, but hopefully we all did hear what he was, was telling us. Well, for more information on currently available experiences and also keep an eye out for what's coming up, you can take a look at the website. It's www.handpicked.co.za or you can call them on 87 845 0500-087-845-0500. And as I mentioned earlier, Handpicked is a division of Tourvest Destination Management. Before we get to chat with Rob Kasky, who went off up the west coast of Africa on this fabulous trip, I just want to give you some ideas of some alternative budget accommodation options that you might have heard about before, but I just thought some of these were really unique. One of them is called couch surfing. So what, from what I can gather, you actually go and stay in somebody's house and sleep on their couch. They even have a website. It's couchsurfing.com and apparently they've been arranging free homestays around the world since 2003 and as they say the quality of the accommodation and the friendliness of the host is rather hard to guarantee but they say the savings will be great and if you'd like to find out more about that it's couchsurfing.com The other place that you might like to stay at is apparently some religious organizations also offer affordable lodging in different locations. There's a website called monasterystays.com and they offer housing within authentic monasteries and convents in Italy. So if you're planning a trip over to Italy, maybe that might be somewhere different, possibly even more affordable to stay. And then if you're feeling a little bit energetic when you're on holiday, you can find a range of accommodation through a farm stay. You can work on ranches and cattle farms or rural bed and breakfasts. And the more luxurious farm stays may not require you to pitch in with farm work, while others may need you to feed livestock or milk the cows as part of your stay. That actually could be rather fun, especially if you're traveling with a family and your kids can have a real farm experience. And if you'd like to find out more about that, those all seem to be in the UK, and that website is farmstay.co.uk. And also, if you'd like to stay in a hostel, there's apparently boutique hostels now. I think in the old days, we all knew hostels to be those backpacking things that the young people did. But I think the more mature travelers can now also stay in hostels. And apparently, they are far cheaper than your average hotel. And you can have a look for those. There's two websites. It's hostelworld.com or hostelbookers.com. And then some unusual hotels, which I thought were rather different if you want to stay somewhere really different. There's something called the Woodpecker Hotel, and that's in Sweden. So this is if you're traveling in Europe. It apparently resides 13 meters up a 130-year-old tree that's near Stockholm in Sweden. And you get there by 
a sturdy but rather wobbly rope ladder. That's already put me off at that point. The platform has impressive views over the park below. And the brainchild of the project, a guy called Mikhail Genberg, thought through every aspect of living in a treehouse. He provides cooking facilities, a heater, and even a small library. There's some rather other rather different ones. There's in also in Sweden, it's a jumbo jet. It dates from around 1976, and it's been converted to provide overnight accommodation. You can choose between an ensuite room, budget dormitory, or twin rooms with shared shower and toilets. However, the best room is the luxury cockpit suite, complete with a panoramic view. Gosh, people come up with the most amazing ideas. Then there's one also, it's also a, a plane, but this is in New Zealand, in Woodland Park. It's a 1950s Bristol freighter plane. It's fully refurbished. It's a former carrier. It's been converted into two beautiful self-contained motel units. And the plane was one of the last Allied planes out of Vietnam. It's the only accommodation of its type in the world. And then there's one in also the, back to Sweden. It's called the Silas Silver Mine. It sleeps 150 guests 155 meters underground in a suite in one of the world's best preserved mine settings now even to those not familiar with mining the underground setting is sensational apparently well i'm saying apparently because they then tell you that it's cold it's damp and it's dark but it's very beautiful i'm not sure that sounds like the place that you really really do want to stay um there's lots of other ones there's one there's one in canada it's called called the free spirit spheres and these spheres of these round wooden balls are suspended in a patch of forest on Vancouver Island. There are three of them, and they sway in time with the trees gently rocking when the wind blows. And the joinery of the spheres is yacht style with brass trim, varnished wood, and cane doors. And each sphere also has electricity going to it. And many claim the serenity of being at one with nature provokes creative thought. I think I'll be able to be far more creative with my feet on the ground. I don't know about swaying around in a wooden ball in a forest. And then there's um, oh, there's one in Finland, and that's uh, home to unique glass and snow igloos, as well as the world's largest restaurant made of snow, it's surrounded by beautiful scenery, and guests can observe the northern lights from September to April from the warmth of their bed. Now, that actually appeals to me. I rather like that. And the last one I'm going to tell you about is called the Boot Bed and Breakfast in New Zealand, and that's a giant boot. It, looks, it actually looks like a boot. It's a big shape of a boot. It's created by somebody called Steve and his partner Judy in 2001. And the curved walls and the ceilings mean that everything has been custom made to fit. And it's rather an unusual, and they claim, romantic hideaway. Well, I suppose each to his own. I think maybe my house is just the place to be. I think I'll just stay there for now. Time to travel on SAFM. I'm joined on the line this evening by Rob Kasky. Now, you might know Rob as the battlefield specialist. He does all these wonderful tours to the battlefields of Isantlwana, and he does lots of talks all over the place about the history, a lot of the history of South Africa. But he decided to take himself off up the west coast of Africa, as I think, Rob, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. It's always nice chatting to you. Good evening. You actually went, you were on board the, was it the MS Expedition, and you actually were, were you sort of like the travel guide? Were you the guest speaker? What were you on this trip? Well, it's quite interesting. I was initially invited to go along as a guest speaker, as one of the visiting onboard lecturers on board the ship. And then a company from America called Road Scholar, as an O-R-A-D rather than R-H-O-D-E-S, invited me to be what is called a study leader for their group of elderly travelers who they had 
on board the expedition for this trip up the west coast. So I took them initially to the Kruger Park for uh, three or four nights, and then we flew down to Cape Town to join the MS expedition. So I officially really had two roles on board the ship. I was tour leader of the 39 Rhodes Scholars on board the ship and a visiting lecturer talking about various aspects of African history on board the ship for all the guests. It's rather an unusual trip, though. It's not something that you'll find in many travel brochures, you know, take a sailing trip up the west coast of Africa. I think we have a lot of negatives with the pirates and things. I mean, you did have one, you yourselves weren't held up by pirates, but it happened relatively close to where your ship was. But what was it like going up the west coast? I mean, it's almost undiscovered territory up there. It really is. I mean, a lot of people cruise around the eastern side of Africa, the west side is largely unexplored and unvisited. And the interesting part about these cruises is that they're being offered really as a very new and adventure-orientated cruise, and it also helps the companies who own these ships in terms of cost of getting their ships in the off-season between the Antarctic and the Arctic and back again. So that was part of the basis as to why this expedition came about. But what is interesting is that everyone always thinks that the pirates associated with Somalia, there are a huge number of pirate gangs operating in and around Nigeria and the Bajagos archipelago off uh, Guinea-Bissau, and it really does create quite an interesting problem for the ship owners. I mean, the ship we were on, we had security on board, we had razor wire around the back of the ship to stop anybody trying to get on. They, they approached these ships with very fast motorboats and get on board quickly and then hold people up with firearms. We had a security company on board who were armed and did patrols around the deck, watching for strange activity 24 hours a day. And in all the problem areas, we had a sort of blackout policy where we had all the windows of the ship blacked out at night, so hopefully passing vessels couldn't identify you as a passenger vessel. But having said all that, we had no incidents. People were held up about 60 kilometers from where we were on the island of Principe uh, off the west coast. But we, for our own part, Corin, had the most incredible journey. You know, warm seas, the seas were flat, so the ship wasn't thrown about, and our landings and shore parties were just spectacular. You started off in Namibia. We went to Namibia first. We had two stops there, Ludwitz and Wolfus Bay, and did excursions inland into the desert from both of those uh, harbors, saw fantastic birds and the Wellwitchias and so forth. After Wolfus and Ludwitz, we went up to Lobito in Angola, and I think that a lot of the passengers felt that Angola and Lobito, on reflection, were perhaps our favorite stop of the entire journey. Is this, I will get on to where else you went after this, but I mean, is this kind of cruise available to South African travelers if they'd like to go? Oh, very much so. It certainly is available to South Africans. Obviously, for them, there are great cost advantages in the sense that they're not having to get to the start. They obviously need to. Uh, concern themselves with their travel back. We all traveled back from Dakar in Senegal, but um, South Africans are most welcome to go. I must tell you then, though, and your listeners, that the visas on this trip are not cheap, and the big problem is that most of the time we only had about six to nine hours in the country. You'd literally land in the morning, go on a shore party for the day, come back to the ship, and then move on to the next country, but you still need a visa. So our visas for this trip cost 
about $750, which at today's exchange rate is the best part of 10 grand. Wow, that's actually quite prohibitive, I would say, in a lot of cases. But on board ship, now you'd actually, as you said, ended up with two roles, but you were the guest speaker on board ship, but you also had the Vintner from High Constantia with you as well. So, I mean, fabulous things happening on the ship. Well, I was intrigued, you know. I've done a number of cruises, thankfully, uh, in the Antarctic, where I talk largely about early Antarctic history. And I've never, ever had the privilege and the opportunity of going on a ship where they have a professional vintner and wine producer like David Fenikic from High Constantia on board. And I can tell you openly, Corin, that the guests absolutely loved it. Eventually, it was the highlight of the week's activities. They tended to do two wine-tasting evenings per week. We were on board for best part of four weeks, so there were eight or nine wine-tastings. And David Fenikic was inimitable. He should be a born presenter in his own right, the way he presents the wines and his knowledge of wine around the world is simply superlative. He was a fantastic addition to the ship's party and the staff. He's great fun, and I want to tell you that the guests loved his wine, which was obviously provided on the house, so to speak, paid for by the ship, and he was just a delight. I've become very good friends with David, and I have no doubt that cruise companies more and more are going to be using a vintner for their entertainment and their added value for their guests on board these cruises. I believe you also introduced your passengers to a Bultong. How did that go down? Well, I must tell you that a lot of the passengers on board were ready to try anything from a culinary point of view. Oh, you know, really? They're pretty adventurous travelers. That's why they're on an expedition ship like that. And that, most of them loved Bultong. Some of them took a little bit of time getting used to the texture, texture and the fact that it quite, can be quite chewy. But eventually they were becoming quite particular about preferring ostrich over <laughs> venison. Others preferred beef biltong over venison. It was wonderful to see how, how biltong went down university to men and women, young and old alike, on board the ship. That sounds great. It's all sort of added into your talks about South Africa because it's part of life here. So it was really great. Okay, so now you ended up where you ended up in Angola. Where did you go from? Uh, do you, obviously you said you had about six hours. Do you get to see quite a bit in that time? You do. Unfortunately, you know, port cities around the world, as a rule, are not very attractive. So they generally are our opening and closing window into the culture and the scenery of any country. And often these coastal plains are fairly flat. So you're not seeing the fantastic mountain ranges and so forth that a lot of these countries have to offer. But Lobito and Angola was particularly pleasant in that we've been to a market. They put on a huge number of uh, stalls and local dancing and singing. And then we were lucky enough to go and visit one of the old Portuguese forts up on the hill above the town. And then we traveled inland on a vintage, uh, literally a vintage antique train. The engine was no longer serviceable, so we had a new shiny red Chinese engine pulling the train. But this journey inland on this vintage train, where we went to see some of the early villages and their fishing techniques and the smoking of fish and so forth, and then coming back on the train back to Libito, on reflection, after a month cruising, proved to be one of the highlights of the journey. Off next to where? After that, we went to Point Noa in the Congo, which I'm sad to tell you proved to be one of the most disappointing stops of the cruise. Um, I don't think that the authorities there were set up to deal with 140 guests climbing off a passenger vessel. The transport and the guides were very, very poorly equipped to deal with us. The English was poor, they were hard to understand, and there's very little to see. So they were trying to make up time by spending a lot of time 
showing us very little. None of us felt particularly safe in the Congo. I think it's a place that balances really on a knife edge for various reasons. And most of the guests, I think, felt quite relieved to get back onto the ship and head north again that evening. Is there a possibility, do you think, of them actually getting it together, or is there just no hope? Is there just nothing there to see? No, no, no. Um, I certainly think there's a strong possibility of things improving markedly in the future. I think the Congo has a great deal on offer, but much of it is inland and away from the coast. And I think that once they've got their structures better in place to deal with large groups of incoming tourists and have guides better versed to deal with tourists, particularly in English, that the Congo's got a lot to offer guests. I've been there previously on a motorbike, and there's no doubt that the Congo's got a great deal to offer guests. It's just that on the day, unfortunately, our experiences there, particularly on the back of great experiences in Namibia and Angola, proved uh, less than great. How, and then you were off to Principe. Was it Principe or Principe? We were then off to Principe and Sao Tome Islands off the west coast of Africa, close to the, to the bulge, which was just fantastic. You know, they grow a huge amount of cocoa there. In days gone by, they grew a lot of coffee. The islands themselves are unfortunately very, very heavily populated. I mean, the island of Principe has 177 people living on it per square kilometer. Very densely populated, but very mountainous. A lot of rainforest that has sadly been cut down and removed for agricultural purposes. But friendly, vibrant people. The music was wonderful. The singing was wonderful. We went and saw some waterfalls and some old coffee estates high up in the mountains. And the history, the colonial history in the town was fantastic. So we had a great stop on um, Sartomi. And then we moved from there up to the next little island called Principe, which is particularly interesting because they've got a marvelous beach resort there called Bonbon, which has been bought uh, quite recently by our very own Mark Shuttleworth. And he's done a huge amount of renovation and improvement on this. I mean, you cannot imagine a more exquisite beach-type resort with white sandy beaches and coconut trees and beautiful um, wild evergreen forests behind it through which you can walk and view wild parrots and the most incredible assortment of birds. So Principe and Sartomi were just magnificent for us. This azure blue water, the people went off on zodiacs to visit little fishing villages and see other local people catch and uh, treat and smoke their fish, um, how they harvest the bananas and the pineapples. It just was breathtaking. Both those islands were wonderful. You said that uh, Bomb Bomb Island, the Mark Shuttleworth Island, you said, I was reading your blog, and you said there that surely this is what the Garden of Eden would look like. Well, I think it would. Unfortunately, the naturalists on board were very upset that a huge degree of the original rainforest and those towering gigantic trees that one should find there have largely been cut down either for wood or for boat building or for um, agricultural purposes. But I want to tell you, in my experience, having done a fair amount of traveling, uh, Corin, it was the veritable Garden of Eden. And I would imagine from a religious point of view, if you were to imagine what the Garden of Eden would look like, it would look like the forests and the area that we saw around Bonbon on uh, Principe Island. At this point in the trip, this is pretty much when the pirates boarded a commercial vessel. It was quite a way away from you, but then you were forced to leave Principe earlier and take rather a longer route to Benin. We were, largely because there's a huge amount of piracy going on in the islands and the coast immediately off Nigeria. So much so that 
a lot of the ships wait for other ships to join them and for a military escort when they're coming down along the west coast and have to go past Nigeria. So we decided for practical security reasons to bypass that area, to skirt it way out to sea and then come into Togo and Benin. As it turned out, it was a long way around, but I think the right call to make. There were quite a lot of the guests on board who were very nervous about the possibility of pirates, however remote it might have been. And that commercial vessel that was boarded was only 60 kilometers from where we were on uh, Principe, which in ocean terms is certainly not far. Now, when you arrived in Benin, you said this, you, you felt that you'd finally arrived in West Africa. What was it about this country that actually made you feel like that? Well, I think a number of things. The first thing is the very brightly colored, imaginative clothing and patterns of clothing that we imagine and associate with West Africa. The dark-skinned, wide-smiling, white-teethed people that we always imagine from West Africa. The vibrancy of the music and the song and the dance, the fairly claustrophobic living conditions, the buzz of traffic in terms of motorcycles and cars and dust on the road, and the feeling of this, you know, the, the, the heat and the humidity in those West African countries really is quite oppressive. And when you climb off the air-conditioned ship and walk down the gangplank onto the um, harbor edge and get into the buses to go inland or get into small vehicles to be taken off on your trips, I think that to me is what really felt West African. The proliferation of masks and wooden carvings in all the stalls and the roadside uh, vendors, what they were selling, I think that to me is what people really imagined West Africa to be. And when we got there, everyone thought, wow, this is what we've really come to experience in West Africa. The sad part about that, though, your stay in that country, was the slave history there. Karen, I must tell you that I've read a fair amount about the slave history and the slavery of Africa. There are some books, I can't really justify them, but there are some books who say that when you get satellite pictures taken from outer space, you can still see some of the major slave routes going down to the east and the west coast in Central Africa. But I want to tell you that when it's in your face and you go into these castles and these slave-holding pens and you go through the gate or the door of what they call no return, the gate or the door of no return, and you imagine the conditions that those poor people endured long before they have put onto the ships. I mean, we were taken into the slave-holding pens of some of the castles there, which are pitch dark, and they're not very big rooms. And then they tell you that 500 women were contained in the cell. And you realize that if somebody died, their um, companions would have to sleep on top of that body and sit on it and stand on it until such time as they came to be removed by ship. They had to do all the ablutions within those little rooms, so much so that the bottom of these rooms have got three and four feet of human excrement across the floor, like a layer of concrete or dried mud. And of course, because of the dark, the eyes become accustomed to the dark. And then after six, sometimes 12 weeks containment in those most deplorable of conditions, they marched out into the bright West African sunshine, so much so that many of them developed major eye problems or blindness on account of being taken out into the sun, tied together and told to walk out onto the beach, onto these longboats, which took them out to the ships out at sea. And when you're actually there and you walk through that door of no return and you realize that there's no return to their homeland, 
their village, their family, their loved ones, if they've survived that long. I get emotional thinking about it, Colin. I cannot tell you what a nauseating and humiliating experience it was. What did the Americans think about of that? Well, the Americans, most of these are very wealthy, far more liberally orientated Americans than their ancestors who really were the reasons that slavery was created going out to those plantations in Central and Southern North America and the northern regions of South America. And a lot of them um, refused actually to go into some of the more difficult venues simply because I don't think that they collectively can deal with the conscience of what slavery meant and particularly what the American contribution to slavery was. So most of the guests on board, particularly my Americans, they didn't even want to visit the slaving stations or be reminded of what went on in any way in terms of the slavery. The Europeans, the South Africans, the Australians, the Brits and so forth on board seem to be able to deal with it more objectively and feel that it's perhaps a conscience or a responsibility that we don't need necessarily to feel wholly responsible for. But my American guests found it very difficult indeed. And most of them, at some of the slaving positions that we went to, wouldn't even climb off the bus. And leaving there, you went off to Togo next. We went to Togo. And what is interesting, you know, Benin is really the headquarters of the voodoo religion and so forth in Africa. And then we went off to Togo. And Togo was interesting because I found Togo far less frenetic and less rushed and less busy than uh, Benin had been. But they have in Togo this thing called the fetish market where these folks uh, create little shrines or fetish-type spots in their homes to ward off evil spirits, and they feel that they are a connection to their ancestral world. And the fetish market in Togo was one of the most dreadful places I've ever been. You know, I'm a real softie when it comes to wildlife, and I love animals and birds. And there are a huge number of birds, animals, snakes, rats, monkeys, crocodiles, all that that have been killed and preserved entirely in the entire form for use with these fetishes in people's homes and in these voodoo temples and so forth. Now, the naturalist amongst the ship's party said, well, what you're seeing here is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the bushmeat trade and how many animals are killed in Africa every year and transported away to feed the bushmeat industry around the world. But the fetish market, to see these woodpeckers and parrots and crows and ducks and frogs and snakes and all manner of God's great creatures taken out of the bush, killed and preserved entirely and almost flattened. You'd find a crow that has been preserved with whatever chemical they used to preserve them and then squashed. So it's pretty much a whole crow that has been squashed flat, almost as if it's had two very heavy presses pressed on its dead body. And it was just appalling. Most of us spent two or three minutes in there and left revolved back to the bus to carry on and look at other things. And what always intrigued me about these countries is the guides are very keen to show us, for example, what the Chinese have done. So they would drive us past the president's new residence, which is a magnificent modern edifice built and sponsored by the Chinese, for example, who want to use the resources of the country. But the old colonial president's dwelling held far more appeal and far more graceful to our manner of thinking than the new one was. The other thing about that area, though, I mean, you, you actually saw some amazing sculptures and art. Oh, we did. 
The art and the sculptures, thankfully some of it's been preserved. There was one museum that we went to which is actually privately owned. And many of the people on board the ship are wealthy folks who are very interested in art. Many of them collect art. Some of them specialize in African art. Said it was undoubtedly one of the greatest collections of artwork and particularly sculptures and figurines and masks that they'd ever seen. Now, I don't know a huge amount about that side of West Africa and all the value of these things. But I must tell you, as an innocent bystander and observer, it was a very, very impressive collection to see. And the folks who knew more about it than I did were hugely impressed and delighted that they are being properly cared for in a beautiful air-conditioned building and are being um, conserved and preserved for future generations to enjoy. Because I must say, most of that sort of thing has been bought by foreigners and taken away from West Africa and finds itself in collections in other parts of the world, I think admittedly well looked after. But it seems a shame that they've left their heartland and their birthplace of West Africa. Just no sticks at the artisan's market for you. Well, you know, (laughs) Corinne, you've obviously been taking great, great note of my blog. You know, I collect sticks. I've got a vast collection of sticks that I've collected all over Africa. Some of them have come from the UK and I take um, a great interest in sticks. And I was intrigued at the number of uh, wooden figurines and masks and so forth that were available in the markets, but absolutely no sticks. There were no worthwhile sticks to come back with um, from this trip up the West Coast. I did, however, buy myself a nice wooden sculpture in the Gambia, which is part of Senegal. And um, we've called him Gots, which is guardian of the sticks. And it's a beautiful um, figure of a man standing with holding a long wooden staff in front of him that stretches basically from his chin down to between his feet. And I've got it standing next to my stick collection in my lounge, and he's officially become in our homestead the, the guardian of the sticks. Oh, good. Okay, at least you have something. Right, off to Ghana. Off to Ghana, yes. Ghana, I mean, Ghana is an interesting place. There's a lot going on there on account of the oil trade. It's quite a modern, vibrant country with a burgeoning economy, obviously not competing with Nigeria, but growing rapidly as it is. Unfortunately, the coastal plain in Ghana is very heavily populated, very flat, rather unappealing visually, and very dusty. And we made two stops in Ghana. Both of them were very interesting. We went to this one stilted village where all the folks live in houses which are on stilts above a lake. Unfortunately, the pollution levels and the coli levels and so forth within the lake have got such that it's a really very unhealthy place to be now. And even the fish populations within that lake have plummeted as a result. And it's just completely overcapitalized, overutilized by the locals. But the villagers and their way of life was well worth going to go and see. But I must say that Ghana, for us, did not hold the same sort of appeal and intrigue as Togo and Benin had done just two days previously, no. And again, with this castle and the slave dungeons there as well. Well, I mean, a huge, huge number of slaves were taken from Ghana. The one thing we haven't touched on, Karen, is just the sheer size of Africa. And when you motor along it in a ship from Cape Town, and you're literally motoring along at 12 to 13 knots, hour after hour, day and night, you realize how big this country is. And of course, Ghana, being much closer to the bulge and the curve of Africa, is that much closer for the sailing ships to get across to Central America. 
So there were a huge number of slaves who were marched overland, captured inland, marched overland to Ghana, and held close to the coast before being put onto these sailing vessels that took them over to America simply because the crossing was that much shorter or less from Ghana than it is from countries further east of there across to Central America. And then you ended up in Sierra Leone. Went to, well, it ended up. We've still got more places to go, but you went to Freetown in Sierra Leone. Well, Freetown and Sierra Leone, nothing can really prepare you for Freetown and Sierra Leone. The folks who knew West Africa well and were in charge of the expedition crew on the ship, they all had spoken about Sierra Leone. I mean, Sierra Leone means the mountain of the lion. And having come across much of West Africa where the coastal plain is flat, when you get to Sierra Leone, it is staggering because you've literally got these mountains that rise up straight out of the sea to two and 3,000 feet above you, on which the local African people have cloned out homes, some of them just shanties, some of them caves, some of them mansions, onto the side of the mountain. And the city has not been able to keep up in terms of sanitation, roadwork, electricity, telephones, and so forth with its green population. So you've got these mansions which are surrounded by shanty towns. You've got all the vendors literally on the sidewalk, sometimes spilling over into the road. The most incredible traffic issues I've seen anywhere in the world, including Cairo, are equaled easily in Sierra Leone. We saw ships offloading rice from the far east into huge hoppers, and it was then decanted directly out of the hopper into plastic bags, which were sewn up and loaded on trucks to be transported out. And when we arrived there, there were a huge number of locals on the key edge looking at the ship. And I was looking at them and discussing with some of my friends on board, saying, I'm wondering whether animals in the zoo ever feel like this. And you wonder quite who's watching who. Because I was unsure as to whether the interest was greater for us looking at the local folks from Sierra Leone or whether the interest was greater for them looking at us pale white faces coming off this big ship from the sea into their little port. The big cathedral close to the port in Sierra Leone has sadly been destroyed by fire. So the walls and the bell tower are still standing, but the roof was gone. But the city itself was simply amazing. We went to the museum. We went past the presidential homestead. They've got a new president there who the locals are placing great store. And many people have gone back to Sierra Leone feeling that he is going to be the savior of the country. I think it's a lot to expect of any one man, but we wish him all the best. His wife came to chat to us on board of the ship and was discussing with us in detail about the incidence of infant mortality in Sierra Leone and how women often die post-birth of infections and various other problems that are often associated with poor hygiene, poor diet, and overpopulation, which characterize the area. And a lot of our guests made large donations to this charity that is giving what they call birthing kits to expectant mothers to try and reduce the levels of infant mortality. And I just found Sierra Leone was an absolute overload of the senses in almost every way, and none of it negative. There is, of course, the olfactory experience with a huge number of very unpleasant smells and things that you see on the sidewalks, but we never felt threatened. We didn't feel unsafe. Nobody was mugged or robbed of any of their possessions. And the amount that's going on in Sierra Leone, particularly in Freetown, was simply astounding. And when we got back onto the ship, you could see everybody sort of breathe a palpable sigh of relief as if they'd had this incredible adrenaline-loaded adventure 
but were delighted to be back within the sanctuary and the safety of the ship after the most remarkable day on land. Sounds amazing. And then you had you were going to two days after that in the is it Bajagos, Bajagos archipelago? Off well, the that coast. in itself is the most interesting story, perhaps of all. Never quite the, got the, there. The Bajagos archipelago is off the coast of Guinea-Bissau, and it's a it's an archipelago of around forty-eight islands, if I remember correctly. With these islands are reefs and atolls, creating very, very shallow water. As a result, ships can't go in there. The only things that are safe to go in there are either pirogues or longboats or motorized small vessels like speedboats and so forth. And as a result, the Bajagos Archipelago has become the staging post for the drug trade between Central America and Europe. Most of the senior officials within the Guinea-Bissau government are involved, right up to the president. And what happened when we got there was American Navy SEALs had captured the head of the Guinea-Bissau Navy on board a ship carrying the Panama flag and had arrested him for drug dealing, had captured a whole lot of drugs, which were definitely moving through that Bajagos archipelago on their way to Europe. And of course, when we arrived with our ship and had more than 50 Americans on board, the Navy and the Guinea-Bissau government immediately suspected us of bringing in more SEALs or special agents to have another crack at their drug trafficking and the drug scene going on there, and they forbade us to make any stops. So we literally had to bypass the archipelago, which was going to be the highlight of the trip, and go straight on up towards Senegal and the Gambia, which was a crying disappointment for all of us. Well, I I actually think, when I was reading your blog, I was thinking to myself, I actually want to move to Gambia. Um, it's the smallest country in Africa, but the, what, what fascinated me and what actually really appealed to me was that they have a four-day week and a three-day weekend. I rather like that. Well, I want to tell you, Colin, that from what we saw of the Gambia, admittedly we were there on a weekend, I'm wondering, too, what goes on in that four-day week. Because <laughs> a more relaxed, laid-back group of people and country you will not meet. It's famous for a huge amount of industry and oysters and fishing, that take place along the Gambia River, which is an enormous waterway running right up to the center of the country. It's, of course, completely surrounded by Senegal. The people were very friendly, spoke magnificent English, very tourist-orientated, magnificent dancing and singing. And, of course, the Gambia is world-famous for the miscellany of birds that it contains. So a huge number of people who are very keen on birdwatching go to the Gambia simply because of the number of birds that you can see in a very short space of time in a very small area. But certainly, if you are part of the very laid-back part of the population, which I think we all aspire to be, the Gambia is the place for you. After that, off to Senegal. This is your last stop now in Dakar. Off, off to Senegal. In Senegal, it was very interesting. We went to Gori Island, which is just off the coast and the city of Dakar, which was one of the main uh, slaving islands enslaving posts along the entire West Coast in days gone by. I believe that the President Obama, who recently visited Senegal, went to visit Gori Island. And that, too, was a stark, humiliating, nauseating reminder of the slave trade and its sordid past. Um, and then we went across into the city, which is quite a modern city. There's a lot going on there, modern skyscrapers and construction and all that taking place. And it really was a real wind-down time. You know, we'd all had this incredibly exciting 25-day cruise up the west coast of Africa. It had been very hot and humid in places. We'd had sensory overloads in many ways on 
various accounts in the various countries that we went to. And the staff particularly, by that time, Karen, I must say, were pretty exhausted. You know, we'd been keeping a close eye on our passengers and trying to entertain them with lectures and interaction and hosting on board at the meals and all that. And most of us were delighted to have got to Dakar without any serious incident on board. It was quite an anticlimax, really, getting to Dakar. I think that the country of Senegal, if you go inland towards the Mauritania border and so forth, which some of the staff did by Land Rover after the trip, has got much to offer. But the city itself, unfortunately, has many of Africa's vices and little of Africa's charm, in my opinion. Dakar itself, I'm not talking about the rest of Senegal. And most of us were just biding our time there, waiting for our flights out in various directions, some east, some west, and some coming south back to South Africa. So rather a sad ending, though. It was, unfortunately, and particularly for my uh, group of 39 Rhodes Scholars who have done a lot of trips with Rhodes Scholars in various places around the world. The hotel, in my opinion, was not really well-versed to dealing with large groups of well-traveled people. The restaurant couldn't cope with 39 people coming in at once for a meal, despite my having pre-booked it. And our last meal and night before they all went to the airport in the car was singularly disappointing and it was a very, very sad ending to what had been an incredible trip up to that point. I'm sure that the, the shipping, shipping company who puts this, this whole tour together would have a look at this for future trips and hopefully make some changes. Oh, very much so. You know, we've been in, in regular communication with them about changes and tweaks and improvements that can be made to the trip. They are now even considering taking the trip a bit further around to Marrakesh in Morocco. There are certainly a huge number of people who want to visit and travel up the west coast of Africa. And I think that it's a very viable option, never mind the distances involved and the issues with visas and the costs. But certainly the shipping company is looking at refining this trip for future use, and it helps them enormously financially in terms of getting their vessels, as I say, from Antarctica up to the Arctic for the rest of the season and then back south again, back down to the Arctic. Was this their first trip up the West Coast? For this particular yeah. company, mm. who are called G-Adventures, based in Toronto and Canada, it was their first foray up the West Coast as a passenger fare-paying cruise, yes. There are some other exclusive cruise companies that have been running trips up the West Coast, and many of their staff ended up on our ship to help us along because they knew the stops, they knew some of the land agents, and they knew where we were going and what we were doing. And their expertise was instrumental in the success of our trip. But for G-Adventures and the MX Expedition, it was certainly their very first cruise, and they call it their inaugural cruise up the West Coast, yes. Well, hopefully, if you wanted to go and experience what Rob did, it, hopefully they would have improved some of the things that were, didn't quite work. But you can understand on a first trip in an, a relatively unexplored part of the world, it can only get better from here. Rob, thank you once again very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening, always with the fabulous stories of your adventures around the world. Thank you very much indeed. Colin, you're most welcome. I look forward to having another chat at some time, should such an opportunity present itself. And you take care. Thank you for your time. I was chatting there with Rob Kasky about his adventures on his cruise. Well, it wasn't really a cruise. It was more of an adventure trip up the west coast of Africa. If you'd like to follow Rob and see what else he does, you can have a look at his website. It's www.robkasky.com. It's R-O-B-C-A-S-K-I-E. Rob Kasky. 
Well, that's it for Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. And I'll be back with you next Monday evening just after nine with The Law Report when attorney Marlon Chevalier will be joining us once again to talk about rental property law. So if you're a landlord or a tenant, be sure to tune in next Monday to The Law Report on that's about nine, just after nine o'clock, and that's Monday the 26th of August. If you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Travel on SAFM.